My name is Jordan, and uh, as I always say, I'm a pastoral apprentice here at Church 21. And I'll also add that I, I'm a pastoral apprentice at Church 21, and I struggle with resisting authority. This will be story time. In 2012, I was driving around the United States with my brother, trying to, to help him kick off the launch of his software company. And as it is in the US, the speed limits are about 60 miles an hour, but in some parts, they're, they're up to 75, which is pretty quick. And was something that always really bothered me, frustrated me, I didn't like, was between highway interchanges in the US, man, the speed limits dropped to like 25 miles an hour. It's just like, why so slow? Who does that? And, and so I kind of had this thing where I always try and maintain speed. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Alan would always be like, oh, well, what are you doing? Like warning me, slow down. And so it was that one early morning I'm driving along and I come around to one of these corners and I try and maintain speed and it had rained and it had frozen and I'm spinning out. And I still remember looking back and there's, there's my brother in the back seat. He's not in a seatbelt. He's in a sleeping bag, you know, feet against the back of the trunk, head against the thing. And I see him bracing himself. He's like, I told you, I told you, as we spun off the road. And so I tell this story to say that maybe you can relate to resisting authority, in this case, traffic authority, right? Um, and this is the topic of what we're going to be speaking about this morning, um, Authority. We're in a sermon series on the book of, of Titus. For those of you who are, who are dropping in today, who are just visiting, Titus is a book in the New Testament. It's written by a guy named Paul. And so <clears throat> whenever you receive a letter, it's always good to know a little bit about who it's from. So who was Paul? He was a super highly educated Jew, educated by one of the best uh, rabbis, teachers of the day. Um, and at that same time, there was a group of people, of other Jews, who, who started to emerge that believed that Jesus was the promised deliverer of mankind, the promised Messiah of the Jewish community. And of course, Paul, he was well taught, but he thought these people, they were heretics. And so he was commissioned to, to, to hunt them down and actually to, to kill them. In fact, he's actually on his way to go kill Christians when he has himself an experience of God. He has an encounter with the risen Jesus, Jesus as Messiah, in which Jesus says to him, why do you kick against the pricks? Actually, your, your resistance of me is a resistance against God himself. And so this experience turns Paul's life around and he goes from trying to kill Christians to becoming a Christian, trying to stop churches, to actually planting churches. This is the grace of God in his life. And so he desires to see more churches and more Christians planted under the good authority of God. And so this is the Paul who writes the book of Titus. And Paul is writing this book to um, Titus, who's about to travel to an island named Crete. Of course, we're on an island as well. If you live on the, in Montreal, you're on an island of Montreal. And, and so Paul's writing this letter to the church, um, to Titus, to carry to the church in Crete and carry out. And today's verses that we're looking at, they're essentially uh, the greeting part of that letter. And uh, you might be wondering, why are we preaching the first four verses like three weeks into the series? And it's really just a combination of uh, Brian being sick about a month ago and then me having to attend a funeral uh, last weekend. But 
Better late than never. Today, we're going to be focusing in on uh, Titus chapter 1 in the first uh, four verses. And so here's the greeting. Um, verse 1 to 3 is, is Paul's introduction of himself. This is the sort of uh, from Paul part of it. And then verse 4, you have the, the to Titus part of it. And the first thing that you're going to probably notice about this greeting is that it's, it's pretty long. Right? This, is a, this is a long reading. It, it doesn't just say, you know, from Paul to Titus, like we might do, right? This is sort of instead of me saying, hi, I'm Jordan. I'm a pastoral apprentice here at Church 21. If I stood up this week and said, hi, I'm Jordan, a servant of God and an apprentice pastor of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faithfulness of Church 21 and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, right? And so on and so on. You'd be like, okay. <laughs> it's, and, and it's not like everybody wrote super long intros back then either. No, this is, this is unique. Paul is actually being very long-winded here. Um, but why? Is it that Paul is trying to reach a sort of theology 101 essay word count? <laughs> no, lame joke. Anyway, no. It's that Paul wants us to know, he wants us to know even from the greeting itself, the purpose of the letter that we're about to read, which is what? Which is church essentials. This is why Paul writes the book of Titus. We see that in verse five, the very next verse after this section, verse five, Paul tells Titus to set in order that which remains, or as some translations put it, put in order that which is lacking. Well, what was lacking in the churches of Crete that needed to be set in order? Well, the church was being led all sorts of places by false teachers. The lives of the Christians in those churches were characterized by immorality to such a degree, you really couldn't tell who was a Christian and who was not. And so what does Paul say they need? Well, in the absence of teachers and leaders, they need qualified elder pastors. And in the face of this moral corruption, they need, well, they need structure and they need good discipleship. They need good teaching and doctrine. And so what Paul is instructing Titus to do is order the church in the way of Jesus. And so Titus is a book about church essentials. But why should Titus listen to Paul? I mean, why should we listen to Paul? After all, wasn't Paul like some Christian killer, right? Wasn't he persecuting the churches? How does he now have the authority to then turn around and start planning churches and saying, you know, here's the doctrine of these churches and on and on and on? Think about it. I mean, especially, especially in a culture like ours, right? In which we just sort of have this inclination and skepticism towards authority. We're just inclined to be critical of it. But, but in authority, it can be good. Actually, what we find is that authority when good is not, it's not oppressive. It's actually, it's actually life giving. And this is the authority of what God is like. And this is also the authority that Paul claims to be operating under the good authority of God. And so we'll see, I mean, throughout this greeting uh, to Titus that Paul is defending his authority and in turn the authority of of God. It's all carried out under God's authority. And so Titus can carry out his ordering. And so as a topic authority today, we will ask this, who has the right to hold authority? The person of authority, the who? What is the posture of authority? What does it look like? 
And finally, what is the purpose of authority? Why do we use a authority? Why, why, does it, why do I say it brings life? And so we have the person, the posture, and the purpose of authority. So first, the person of authority. We'll start uh, in verse 1 with this. Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it uh, with me. I would invite you to. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So here we see that Paul is at once a, a servant, or this could be translated as slave, uh, and he's an apostle. So from the idea of slave, we get this idea of submission coming under. But from this idea of apostle, we get this idea of authority, someone who stands over. And so we see at once in Paul both submission and authority. But you might be wondering, Jordan, Jordan, why do you make this link between apostle and authority? What, what is an apostle anyway? Well, quickly, an apostle... Um, in the New Testament was someone who was called, it was a sent one. It was someone who had been, uh, who had encountered the risen Jesus, like you heard Paul earlier, and been commissioned by him to sort of lay the building blocks of the Christian church. So these were people who were um, teaching and defending and extending the gospel. They were leaders of the leaders. And so they were people of great authority. This is why we say apostle was somebody who had authority. And this is who Paul was. But who does it say Paul was an apostle of? Does it say Paul was an apostle of Paul? No, of himself. No, not apostle of James, not an apostle of anybody else. No, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the who behind the who's who if you would have that. He's the who behind the who's who. That means that all of the authority that Paul has ultimately comes from Jesus. It ultimately comes from God. Paul is not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. Even Paul must admit, right? Verse one, he's a slave or a servant. In verse three, you see that he is entrusted by the command of God. So God is ultimately the person and authority. And so all of the authority that Paul has is by virtue of his submission to and his commissioning by Jesus. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's a lot. But let's let's think about this idea of authority. Why is it that we say that God has authority? Why is it that we say that God has authority? I I, I don't think that this will be readily obvious. Uh, to everybody here. I think we actually have to show, show the link. We have to, sh we have to, I have to illustrate this. Um, and so let's say, let's say that you are given a poem by somebody who is very close to you, somebody you love, and they've written this poem. So they write you this nice, lovely poem. What a gesture. And they give it to you. And if you're like me, you don't get poetry. Poetry is just written to frustrate people like me. <laughs> and so you read this poem, you're like, ha, ah, that's so nice, but you don't know what it means. What are you going to do? What are you not going to do? Are you just gonna continue on and say like, thank you, very nice, put on a nice smile, and just hope you guess what the right meaning of the poem meant? I mean, this is somebody who's really close to you. This could be like a family member, someone you really love. And so to misinterpret that poem, to go on just living your life guessing what it means, that could actually really compromise, that could really throw off, damage the relationship that you have with that person, right? 
And so you're not gonna do that. No, what are you gonna do? You're gonna ask the person, you're gonna ask this loved one, what did you mean when you said this in the poem? Why? Because they're the author of the poem. The author of the poem has the authority to tell you what the poem means. And so it is, right, with you and I in relation to God, right? Christians believe that God exists and that he has spoken. And because he's author, he has authority, not just over creation generally, but over you, over your life. Meaning that because God has created, he knows what's best for you, right? Just like, just like in this illustration, right? You go to the author of the poem to understand its meaning. So it is with you and I in relation to God, right? We go to God, right? Because he is the author of your life. He can bring to light what the purpose and the intention and the meaning of your life is, how you're to be understood, how you're to be read. You are God's masterpiece. You are his work of art. And for best results, living under his authority is what is good for you because he made you. This is the connection between God and authority. But we would probably readily admit that we have a problem with that. We have a cosmic authority problem. And there are different versions of this cosmic authority problem, but here's one that I often hear on university campuses. And it goes something like this, Jordan, Jordan, aren't all authority claims like this? Aren't they just sort of disguised power struggles? Aren't they just disguised power struggles and they're false, right? People who claim authority, they're always just trying to gain power. And this includes Paul, right? Just just think about this. Paul calls himself a, a, an apostle. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This isn't just an example of what Nietzsche called the will to power, right? See, if there is no God, then there is, can be no true and rightful claim to authority. No true author of, of humanity, no authority to be exercised in humanity, right? It's all just a power grab. Resist it, submit to no one but yourself. This is sort of a common objection that we would see, right? But then what happens, friend, if I take that very same logic about the will to power and I turn it right back on you? You see, isn't your resistance also a will to power? Isn't that also then just a power grab? Listen to this insightful quote from Thomas uh, Nagel, he's a philosopher. He says this, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this is a cosmic authority problem that is not a rare condition and it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. I think Nagel is right here to say that this is not a rare 
condition, that we have a cosmic authority problem. See, how much of our culture's resistance to God is actually a resistance to his authority. But I want to recognize in saying this that maybe our resistance comes from other places, right? Maybe it does come from bad experiences, from power-hungry authorities. We'll, We'll come back to that. But what I can say is that God is not like that. God is not like that. See, there is no need. Think about it. There is no need for God to get more power. He already has all power. By his very nature, he is all powerful. And so whether you submit to him or not, he still has all authority, including authority over your life. But more than that, not only does he have all authority anyway, he doesn't need more power, but you can can trust him. He is a trustworthy authority in your life. See, unlike us, our character changes. His character never changes. You can trust him then more than you would trust yourself. This is probably what Paul is talking about uh, by his comment in verse 2. He says in verse 2, Look at how God is described here. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. God who never lies. Literally, this is translated as the unlying God, right? From ancient Christian writing, we know um, that the, the Christian view of God who was called Zeus, the Cretan view of God. There were these stories about him. And one of the stories, a well-known one, is that Zeus really, really wants this woman. And he's, unda- he's un- unable to seduce this woman. So what he does is he, he takes on the body of this woman's husband. He, he disguises himself in order so that he can sleep uh, with this woman. And so in Zeus doing that, if you think of that, Zeus becomes the, the sort of greatest of all uh, deceivers. He embodies He embodies a lie, and he actually uses his power to oppress and to abuse. And so Paul, he's writing this verse, I think, in in chapter 2. This is what commentators say in order to sort of reply to this conception of God, that rather than God embodying a lie, this is a God who never lies. This is the unlying God. See, it's the complete opposite. This is a God that you can, can trust, a God who, he says, keeps his promises, keeps his promises. Let's, let's take a moment to, to actually just some, take some joy in that. Take some joy in the fact that the, the God who, who authored the cosmological constants of this universe is at the same time the God who promises to never leave you or forsake you. That the God who authored the strand of DNA that is you at the same time promises is that he is a strong tower who the righteous run in and are safe. That you can be secure in him. And so do you trust him? Do you trust his promises to you? The text goes on. God who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word. 
So God doesn't just say that we can trust him. He shows that we can trust him. It says at the proper time, he manifested in his word. Who is his word? The word is Jesus. The word that was made flesh, it says, and dwelt among us. The word who was God, was with God, and was God, John says. See, Jesus is the one who willingly gives up the exercise of his power to come to earth and to reach you. And so you can see how this is not a power grab. This is not a power grab. This is a power give. Philippians 2, this is a power surrender. This is the true posture of authority. The person of authority demonstrates the true posture of authority, right? Which is our second point, the what. Remember that in verse one, we already looked at this, but Paul, he calls himself an apostle, but before he calls himself an apostle, he calls himself what? He calls himself a slave. In other words, Paul is a, he's a servant before he's a leader. Paul is a servant before he is a leader. It's in that order that Paul carries out his ministry. This is the true posture of authority. And it's for the sake of who? Is it for the sake of himself? No, it's for the sake of the faith of God's uh, elect. It's for the sake of others. Like Jesus, this is the posture Paul carries out his apostolic authority. I want you to listen to um, Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians about what's it like to be an apostle. And I, won't, I, di- I didn't put this up on the screen. I'll read it for you. I want you to listen. So this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, verse 9 through 14. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels and humans. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up until this moment. This description I just read, is this what you think of when you think of a leader? Is just the posture of authority that you think of? Is this the job description of the CEO of your company, right? See, there's something different. There's something different about gospel-centered authority. It comes with a different posture. I didn't read verse 14. The very next verse says this, I am writing this to you, Paul says, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. And so you can just see it again. Paul has this posture always about him of caring for the good of the other, even when he is you know, the scum of the earth, even when his position is put on display and he's brutally treated, he's still thinking, still thinking about the good of the people that he is serving. Paul is walking in this, in the way of Jesus. This is the posture of authority, the posture of true authority, to which we say, oh, mm, doesn't that sound too good to be true? You know, it's very idealistic, Jordan's very nice. I like it, but not reality. 
right? Because we have so many bad examples of bad authority figures. We have so many examples of bad authority figures in our life, right? Much of the reason uh, that we are skeptical, much of the reason we resist authority is because abusive postures of authority that have been used over us, right? Abuse, right? That's where someone who uh, is in power over you uses their power to extract something from you for their own selfish ends, right? Um, This could be, uh, if you're a kid, maybe you were bullied by somebody who was bigger than you. As you got older, you're in a job force, you're working, and your boss says, hey, like, if you just put in these extra hours, not paid, you might get this promotion. And then, you know, the guy next to you gets the promotion, and this just goes on and on and on. You're like, oh, man. Culturally, right, we went through uh, a Me Too moment, right? The stories of survivors of sexual abuse and harassment uh, being told. And this is something that happened in the church as well. It, you know, stories from everybody from the Roman Catholic Church to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, last week, there was the revelations about uh, John Vanier. Uh, if you think about it, uh, Quebec, Quebecers of a whole, as a whole, um, have a resistance to the church over the allegation of an abuse of its authority uh, in this province. So this is, a, this is a big deal. This has all affected us. Um, it's, it's really affected us. I mean, maybe you're, maybe you're someone here, right, who struggles to trust me. You struggle to trust uh, the leadership uh, of, of this church based on experiences you've had in past churches, bad experiences of, of, of leadership and authority. You know, it might not have to be something like what I was talking about. It might not have to be something to the, you know, like a, a scandal or a cover-up, right? It could be something as, as straightforward as the person who was, who was tasked to lead and to care for you didn't lead and care for you until they needed something from you, right? They only arrive in your life when it's your time and your talent and your treasure that is wanted. See, that's a form of abuse as well. That's a form of sort of objectification. So what are we to do? What are we to do with all these horrific abuses of authority, right? We can't ignore this. We can't ignore being treated as an object. It is a, a sort of means to another end, like just being squeezed for the juice that can be gotten out of us. It's wrong. It's wrong. And so our natural response when we have been squeezed like that, when we have been abused and used and hurt and harmed, our natural response is to what? Reject, resist, push away all authority. But this leads to a problem, doesn't it? If you've been listening to everything I'm saying, the problem is that the way of Jesus The path of full flourishing, growing into the life of Christ requires a submission to authority. It requires a submission to the authority of God and the authority that he has commissioned in his church. And so what do we do? I'm I'm not saying that you need to submit to every person who claims authority in your life, but it's important to be able to discern the authorities that God has placed in your life for your good for his glory. (sighs) See, let's put it like this. Let's let's say that you reject all authority. Does that mean you are free? If you reject all authority, does that mean you are free? No. Remember what Paul says in verse one, that he is what? A slave to God. 
If you're not a slave to God, it doesn't mean you are free. No, it means that you're then just a slave to your passions, your desires, your dreams, your impulses, whatever that is. And the tragic thing about those is your dreams and desires and impulses, those things are going to change. Those things are gonna contradict. Those, Those things are gonna come and go. See, being your own authority is not ultimately freeing. You actually end up getting stuck. You end up getting tossed this way and getting tossed that way, which is a lot like before I learned how to to snowboard. I was talking to to Ryan coming in this morning. He was telling me he went snowboarding for the first time at uh, St. Sever this week, and I'm sure he could could relate to this kind of of thing, right? Before I knew how to snowboard, you know, first time I go to the hill, and I pretty much did what I wanted, right? I didn't know how to turn. I didn't know how to control myself. I just sort of go down the hill, tossed to and fro like a falling leaf, right? You see this motion. You see people going down, down the hill like this, right? All the time. That is until what? Until my brother came up beside me, right? And he patiently tells me, you know, put your weight like this, point your toes like this. And he shows me how to move my board. And honestly, that's super frustrating at first, right? It feels like you're, you're fighting all your sort of natural instincts. But eventually, through the practice of that what? You learn how to snowboard. See, what if my brother had just told me, just, you know, go however you want. Just do what's comfortable for you. and Follow your passions, whatever, right? I would have been going down the hill like this still. <laughs> you know, I never would have known the freedom of what it's like to truly snowboard, Right? I had to trust my brother's instruction. I had to trust his authority. And so you can see, you can see in this case, authority, listen closely, authority was not the enemy of freedom. Authority was what made true freedom possible. Authority was not the enemy of freedom, is what made true freedom possible. And so it is with life. True, real, and lasting freedom is not found in chasing down your dreams. True, real, and lasting freedom is not found in the absence of restrictions. It's found in knowing who you are in Christ and living that life in him to the full, running free and wild in the power of his spirit under his good authority. This is what Paul's journey is all about, right? He moved from being a slave to sin, which is is death itself, to being a slave to God, which is life itself. And so this can be true of you. See, the question, the question is not, am I a slave or not? No. The question is, who are you a slave to? Are you slave to yourself in sin? Are you slave to Christ? You slave to self and sin, or are you slave to Christ? You see, Jesus is emphatic. You cannot serve both masters. He's saying it doesn't work. You can't do that. You cannot try and make yourself an authority because you'll end up hating the authority of Jesus in your life. You cannot serve two masters. Rather, Jesus says, come, trust me, turn from that. Come and run free and wild under my good authority. His good authority. How can we know It is truly good. At the end of verse three, Paul says that he is under the command of God, our savior. That that God who has authority over all of creation and our lives 
takes on the posture of savior, of rescuer, which means what? Remember that first objection. It means that, uh, that at the center of all reality is not some giant power struggle. The center of all reality is not some cruel, oppressive, selfish power. No, at the center of reality is a God of self-denying love. A God of self-denying love who through his death crushes all evil and abuse and oppression. See, true authority then is not a power struggle. True authority is Jesus Christ giving his life for you. That's what true authority looks like. And so you can praise God that the center of reality is not some selfish power monger. It's Jesus in his sacrificial love. A servant. Praise God. Praise God. What happens? An oppressor goes to the foot of the cross and they are humbled. This is the power of the cross. Someone who is oppressed goes to the foot of the cross and what? They are raised up. This is the power of the cross. God has rescued us from baddest authority. He's rescued us from slavery and brought us under his good rule and reign. And this is the posture of God's authority a rescuer, one who wills and loves, self-denying love, wills the good of the other. And so, do you reflect this posture of authority in the ones that you are called to lead? Do you reflect this posture of authority in the ones you are called to lead? Right? As as people who have influence, we all have influence in a certain degree in our lives. We will make mistakes and there is grace for that. We know where we have come from. We know of how it was that we were slaves to sin and Christ has freed us from that. And so we can extend grace, but that still, still, when Christ has transformed and his spirit has come, we still need to ask ourselves, when we exercise our authority, is it motivated by a love for God and others or is it motivated for ourselves? to carry out our mission, our intentions, our good ideas, our ministries, whatever it is. What's it motivated by? Parents, is this how you lead your children? Husbands, is this how you lay down your life for your wife? Bosses, is this how you lead in your workplace? City group leaders, church pastors, all of us, we're included in this call. What is the posture by which you carry out your authority. Remember the the posture of Jesus's authority. And finally, we have the purpose of authority. Why it brings life, the purpose of authority. What was Paul's purpose as an apostle? He says this in verse one. It is for the uh, sake of the faith of God's elect. It's for their knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the truth, which accords with Godliness. You remember Paul is instructing Titus to put in order this really messy church set of situations. He's like, yo, Titus, here's the purpose of my authority I'm giving you, right? Nourish, nourish the roots of faith. Build the lattice of truth. Prune, prune for the fruit of godliness. Paul uses his authority to to nourish these roots of faith. Paul knows, right, nothing can happen. No real transformation can take place until a life 
till, till a life has been replanted into the eternal life of God. Nothing can happen until that center of authority has been shifted to, from me being an authority to him being the authority of my life, which is what trust is all about. He is the authority of my life. I have to trust him in that. And this is what faith is, the faith that Paul knows needs nourishment. That's how he uses authority, to nourish faith. And next, he uses it to build the lattice of truth, something he calls the knowledge of truth. That from the, from the roots of faith, if we can continue on with this imagery, that from the roots of faith, the vine grows up and it needs direction. The vine needs uh, structure to it. Doctrine then, he's saying, makes a difference. It will influence, right? It, if you don't, the doctrine will influence how that vine grows in the example or doesn't or doesn't grow, right? And this can be pretty counterintuitive to us, somewhat surprising. We think like, oh, doctrine, dogma, structure, like how drab, right? How boring, right? Those kind of crusty, dry people who are just like, oh, they're so divisive and moralistic and heavy-handed. This is what we think of as doctrine and dogma, isn't it? But no, no. When it comes out of a life of faith, right, doctrine, doctrine becomes this lattice that your faith grows up on. You remove the lattice, the vine falls, falls into the weeds or whatever, right? And so Paul, this whole book, right, this book of Titus, it's a book about church essentials, about structure, doctrine, and authority because doctrine makes a difference. It matters to your faith. It matters. It affects how you grow up in Christ. It affects the leaders that you're going to listen to, the community that you walk in. It can result in godliness. And without it, without it, you will not flourish, to say simply, right? You could apply it like this. Like, are, are you drifting on your own? As you... As you attend this church or a part of a community as you dip in and out? Are you, are you moored? Are you rooted? Are you latticed up? Are you accountable to anybody? Are you accountable to God's authority at all in any place, right? At Church 21, we readily desire um, that Jesus, we would say, is the head pastor of this church. Jesus is the head pastor of this church, and we, only, we can only minister with the authority of Christ in so much as we are under the authority of Christ. But are you living under God's good authority? Right? Does that have any real practical bearing in your life? Are you actually accountable to anybody at all? Is there anybody speaking into your life? Are you part of a change group? Are you part of a city group? Are you living as a Christian in community? It's so easy to to go without that, to live a life sort of unmoored, right? Unmoored, you don't even know where you're gonna end up. Where's, where, what are you growing into, right? And so this is, this is what Paul is talking about. Doctrine makes a difference. I mean, I hear, I hear notions like this all the time, right? It's a, it's a DYI spirituality. I sort of pick and choose what I like. Like this has good vibes, that doesn't have good vibes. I like a little this, I like a little that. <laughs> Quite simply, Jesus is, and the apostles, they're all saying, forget it. Like, that's not going to work. That's not going to grow you up into the, to the, in, the, in the way of Jesus. That's not going to grow you up into the life of Christ. 
That's the path of destruction. You need to repent of that and come back to God's good authority, come under his good authority uh, in your life and the authority that he's put in place. And so the lattice of truth matters. Doctrine makes a difference. This is what Paul is saying. And finally, he uses authority to cultivate the fruit of godliness. Paul says the knowledge of a truth which accords with godliness, that that real truth is worth pursuing because it can grow you up into this. And you might ask, well, like, what, what, what is godliness? What, what is this word? This sounds very godly, <laughs> very Christian, very moral, but what is godliness? Godliness is a longing to know more of Christ and his glory. It's a devotion to Christ. It's a, it's a fixation. It's a... It's a, it's a fear and a love and a desire of God. And so when I say devotion, there's a warmth to that. I mean, think about it. How, when, you think, when you think of the people in the church, when you think of your leaders, and I, and I say this like convicted, do you think of godly people? Is there an, like an aura of warmth about them? Or are, you, are they characterized by the mission or the vision, right? It's so easy to get lost in that. It's so easy to, to, to conflate and confuse sort of activity with an attitude of heart, right? All this movement, this busyness, this ministry and this city groups and discipleship and um, church um, like uh, spiritual disciplines and all this kind of stuff and events, confuse that with a posture of heart that fears and loves and desires God for God's sake. Don't confuse those things. I, I love how Paul talks about this. Paul describes godliness so well. Philippians 3.10, he says this. Just listen to the intensity of this. For my determined purpose is that I may know him that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. Does this describe you? Does this describe our church? Are we pursuing God so hardcore that we're recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more and more and more? That fear of God is so hot that sin just shrivels in our midst. <laughs> That's, I wanna be a person like that. I wanna be godly. I want for us to be godly. We, I des our desire is that we would be godly people, people who are fixed to cry out and say, I want more of you more, more of you, Lord, less of me, more of you, more of your authority in my life more of your good leadership in my life and less of me trying to take control. That's what it looks like. That's what godliness is. Let us long and thirst after Jesus. You see, when it's, when it's his authority in our life, that means certain parts of us are gonna get cut out, right? Parts of us are gonna have to be pruned. When you say more of you and less of me, off comes selfish ambition. Right? Off comes sexual immorality. 
This stuff begins to fall in the light of God's good presence in our lives. This is what godliness is. For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may become progressively more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Godliness, godliness, that's what it means to be fully human. That's what it looks like to be fully alive. It's the way of Jesus, says Eugene Peterson. It's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus that brings about the abundant life of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus, which brings about the abundant life of Jesus. So this is the purpose of authority. This is true of you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your good authority in our lives. I pray that we would be a people who submit joyfully to you, that we could run wild and run free under your good leadership in hand that we would be a a godly people, a people who fears you and is devoted to you and conveys a warmth, the warmth of your presence to the peoples of this world. God, we love you, we need you, and I ask that your spirit would be present during this time of worship, during this time of song, be convicting us of sin, be leading us into greater intimacy and depth with you. In Jesus' name, I ask this, amen.